Good morning. Good to see you all this morning and looking forward to our time together. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, our time together this Wednesday as well, as we'll be looking at Second Samuel chapter 9 and encourage you to read ahead if you'd like to join us. We had a pretty heavy chapter last Wednesday and we've got a wonderful chapter ahead of us uh, this Wednesday night as David begins to care for, seek out and care for those who were of Jonathan's family, and uh, we'll talk about the importance of that this Wednesday. Also, we've had some calls come into the office and some emails about concerns uh, regarding our Israel trip and the coronavirus. And uh, let me just say this. I just came back from the Philippines, and while I was there, a volcano erupted. <clears throat> and on my way home, I spent four hours in Hong Kong. And news was all over the media about the coronavirus, and yet here I am today. You know why? Because God is sovereign and in control. Amen? And listen, I'm more worried about the flu in this country than anything else. It's killed 8,200 people in just this flu season, in just this United States, and not one person has died of the coronavirus here in our country thus far. And uh, yes, of course, we need to be wise. Yes, of course, we need to be sound in our decision-making. But the fact is, we're not going to die one millisecond before God has ordained because we're his children. Amen? So let me just throw that out there for those who have concerns. I'm going, and um, I'm in the risk category of people to get it because I have lung issues. But uh, God has called us to this, and I'm excited about it. And uh, we'll see you when we get back. Amen. All right, here we go. You ready? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24 will finish off the chapter, taking a big bite for us here this morning from verses 14 through 27. Now, last week we noted that as Paul stood before Felix and the hired orator that Ananias had uh, obtained in order to level false accusations at Paul according to the proper etiquette of the court, the charges against him were not unlike the charges that are being leveled at us today in the court of public opinion. Paul was accused of religious sedition. He was accused of sectarianism. He was accused of political insurrection, and so are we. We are accused of religious sedition today and considered as hateful elitists because we don't recognize that all religions are equal. Well, they are not equal. There is one God, and he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the Jew and the God of the church, and he is the true and living God, and there is no other. Amen? And we are called seditionists because of that, or we are accused of facing or causing dissension, as was Paul. Now, the accusation of sectarianism was also leveled at him. And it's not just that he was accused of being part of the Christian religion, this newly established religion, but they were trying to create a negative association with him by calling him the ringleader of the Nazarenes. And Nazarene was a derogatory statement. It was a slur that we uh, mentioned last time we were together. And the same is true with us today. We are sectarian in the minds of many in that we're not just Christians. We're the worst of the batch. We're evangelical Christians. And listen, every Christian should be an evangelical Christian because evangelizing is what we're called to do as Christians. Go to the world and preach the gospel to who? Every 
creature. Now, the final accusation against Paul was twofold in that he was first accused of sacrilege. It was said of him because they saw Trophimus, a Gentile, in uh, Jerusalem and near the Temple Mount. And they thought, well, Paul brought him beyond the court of the Gentiles into the court of the male Jews only. And therefore, he had violated Jewish law concerning the Temple Mount. But it was packaged in the political form and format, that is, because the one area that the Romans left in control to the Jew was matters concerning the Temple Mount. Both they were uh, allowed by Rome to judge and render punishment. So Tertullus and the Jews threw uh, Claudius Lysias under the bus and accused him and Paul of political insurrection in that the Jews claimed they were robbed of their rights according to Roman law to judge matters regarding the Temple Mount. And Claudius ripped with violence Paul out of their hands, which was a lie, and thus disobeyed Rome and therefore Caesar. Now, we too are considered to be enemies of the state today because of our faith, because of our exclusivity of belief in how one may arrive in heaven, which is only through Jesus, but also our position on moral matters and human sexuality has now caused us to be anti-globalism, which I am. I hope you are too. So our day and Paul's day have significant parallels. And we pointed this out when we covered chapter 23, where we titled our time together, The End is Near. Now we noted in chapter 23 that the end of Paul's life was near. The end of the temple era was near. And as we live today, the end of the church age is near. Jesus is coming soon. Now, in Acts 14, 19, we were told the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, that being Lystra, supposing him to be dead. Now then we were told in Acts 21, 27 to 29, when the seven days were almost ended, Paul had agreed to take purification rites and pay for the others, uh, other men to take them as well. The Jews from Asia, seeing in the, him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple, that's the uh, Trophimus accusation, and defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple, but he didn't. Now we noted from chapter 21 that after Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, the balance of Paul's days would be spent in some form of arrest or imprisonment. He would spend two years in Caesarea, then be transferred to Rome, where he would spend another two years before the end of his days on earth. Now, there was another transition that took place prior to that, as we read a moment ago in chapter 14. Now, first of all, there were always problems because of Paul's presence in any city. Then there was problems because of Paul's preaching. And his presence and preaching then led to his pursuit, and the Jews began to pursue after him from city to city in an effort to kill him. 
Now, we're being pursued today as well, in spite of the fact that our presence and our preaching used to be respected and protected in these United States of America. Yet today, by many, it is disparaged and despised. So we indeed are following exactly what Paul experienced, and we too are at the time of the end. Now, last week we talked about the best defense is a... Well, some say it's a good offense, but we found that's not necessarily true in our context. We're going to continue in that direction this morning, recognizing that there has been a shift in enemy tactics in our day as he continues to seek those whom he may devour. And that tactic needs to be met with our title this morning. And our title is simply this, in these days that we now live, we are to be, and here's our title, holding fast to our confession. Our title this morning is Holding Fast to Our Confession. Now, we're being pursued today as enemies of tolerance. We're being pursued today as proponents of antiquated thinking. We cannot do as many have today, and that is change our position or biblical standards and truths because of political and societal pressures. And that's where you say, now, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is what? Is faithful. Is he still faithful today? Absolutely. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. Our time this morning is going to be an exhortation. Of course, it usually is every week, but it will be again this morning, encouraging us, building us up by the word of God. And then we're told so much the more as you see the day approaching. Well, we can see the day of the Lord approaching. Amen. We can see things developing right now that are going to happen during the tribulation. And by the way, I'll remind you again this morning, the great escape precedes the great tribulation. We will be out of here before the world experiences the wrath of God and all of its undiluted fullness. Now, in our closing verses last week, Paul said, I didn't do any of those things that they accused me of, and they can't prove a thing. Now, he opens our text this morning with these words, but this I confess. I didn't do that, but I did do this. And he held fast to his confession of hope without wavering, and we have to do the end as the end draws, or do the same as the end draws near. So let's learn how to do that this morning. Are you ready? Stand and read with me, please, our opening section, Acts 24, verses 14 through 21. And as I said, we will finish off the chapter this morning. Acts 24, pick it up in 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a good conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council." 
unless it is for this one statement, which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. And Lord, we are thankful for our text this morning. We pray, God, that you would teach us through your word and give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying about holding fast to our confession and the importance of it and the power of it. And Lord, we thank you that we have your book to guide us through these last days. Thank you. You told us all things in advance that we might be prepared for life in such a time as this. We pray you are exalted in our hearts and minds. And Lord, that we would tell others about you when we leave. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of you guys, uh, staff guys, can go uh, turn the air on a little bit. It's a little stuffy in here, if you wouldn't mind. You know, I, I always like it, a balmy 45 degrees or so. That's just perfect, perfect weather for me. But hopefully we can find a happy medium because I know most people don't like that. But it is a little stuffy up here in particular. So Paul opens his confession by rejecting the idea that he is part of a sect. He actually says, I'm following a way. No, he says he's following what? The way. And that is how Christianity was described early on. And indeed, it is the way because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father but by him. Amen. Now, he then offers his confession and he packages it in four components that we have to hold fast to and never surrender, regardless of the pressures that the world is putting us under today. First of all, he says he worships the God of their fathers. He worships the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, not the God of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael, a character called Allah, but Jehovah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He identifies who is the object of his worship. Then he says, I believe everything written in the law and the prophets, which was simply an idiom for the word of God. In other words, he says he believes all the word of God is true. Do you believe the word of God is true today? Then he says that he fully accepts that there are two eternal destinies. And finally, he says that he strives to live a life that is morally pure. Now, having given this confession, which we'll talk more about in a moment, he then tells Felix in verses 17 to 21 what really caused him to be standing before him that day. He points back to the fact that having not been to the temple in many years, he arrived at the temple in a purified state according to the law of the Jews. And there was not a mob, nor did he cause a tumult. Now, tumult simply means a disturbance, but in biblical context, it means a religious disturbance. And then he rightly points out that those who actually accused him in Jerusalem aren't even there. Those who level these accusations. And therefore, he says, since they're not here, the whole testimony of Tertullus, uh, Tertullus rather, was hearsay as well as being in error. Now, he did mention that there was one thing that he said that stirred up the crowd and caused a disturbance, disturbance, and that was declaring that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. And that is why he was being judged. Now, in chapter 23, 69, we have record of that, where Paul, when he perceived that one part of the group were the Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. 
And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit. But the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Boy, there's some wise counsel. Don't fight against God. Amen. Now, Paul admits it. I was tactical in my defense and the cry that I gave concerning the resurrection of the dead caused dissension or division in those who were accusing me. Now, he says, uh, even in his confession, that that is part of what he believes, that there will be a resurrection from the dead. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment as well. Now, we need to remember that the word confess means to either see of or speak of as the same. It means to not deny or to agree with. So Paul says, I agree with what the Bible teaches and I do not deny them. Now, here's the first thing we need to take note of in light of much of what is going on in churchdom today and many of the things we see happening. And there was another church uh, that publicly declared itself to be a gay affirming church and basically abandoning what the Bible teaches concerning that specific sexual activity. And uh, it's because of pressures that are coming in from the world and society. But here's what we need to remember. And I package this in a way that I think we would well understand, and it doesn't sound super spiritual, but it actually is. Are you ready? Three of you are ready. The rest of you are getting it anyway, so get on board. Here we go. You ready? There is no such thing as a cut-and-paste confession. There is no such thing as a cut-and-paste confession. In other words, we can't handcraft our own confession and present to the world what we agree with and not mention what we don't agree with concerning the Bible. We need to be like Paul and say the four things that we noted in his confession. He worships the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believes every word of God is true and uh, consistent with 2 Timothy 3.16, which he would later write that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. He accepts that there are two eternal destinies and he uses the word of God to establish this portion of his confession. And he strives to live a life that is morally pure. What are we hearing today? We're hearing today, we all worship the same God. We are all God's children, which is not true. You become God's child by being adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, if we all worship the same God, it denies the God of the Bible. It denies the deity of Jesus Christ. And the Bible is viewed by many today as being subject to human acceptance. And all or part can be true based on a person's individual decision. Some say there's only one eternal destiny. Others say that there's no moral standard by which the Christian is to live since we're saved by grace. And yet Paul says, as we just dissected his confession, he says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the things you agree with. What did he say? That you all speak, the whole church teaches the same thing, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, and what? In the same judgment. Now, 
It might be popular to cut and paste the doctrines and duties of the Christian faith today, but there is nothing more dangerous to the one who does it and to those who follow it. Then listen, every religion does not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Paul's fathers, the true and living God. We're also told in Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is what? Truth and every one of your righteous judgments endure forever. In other words, they don't change, even though society wants to change them. And the Bible is not subject to cultural acceptance or human adaptations. It's all true as written. Somebody say amen. Amen. Including the fact that there are two eternal destinies. Daniel 12, uh, 2 to 3 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Amen. Now, Revelation 26 says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Is it important to be part of the first resurrection? Absolutely. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Then Revelation twenty thirteen to 15 says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were what? By what? By their works, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Do those who are part of the first resurrection have anything to do with this? Absolutely not. And anyone, say anyone. Anyone not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Listen, there are two eternal destinies. There are two eternal destinies without question, and they are both determined by what one does with the person of Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Christ as God's only offer and means of salvation are part of the first resurrection, and over them the second death has no power. Those who do not believe are judged by their works, and the lake of fire is their eternal destiny. Now... As to there being no moral standard by which the Christian is to live, with, which is very popular today in uh, the hyper-grace and free-grace circles, we're told in 1 Peter 4, 1-3, to Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We mentioned this last week, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for what? For the lusts of men. Now, but for the will of God, there's the transformation, there's repentance. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Hebrews adds this in 12:14: Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, holiness means purification. It means moral purity as well. And the fact that it must be pursued tells us that what Paul mentioned about striving to live with a good conscience before God and men is something that's going to take effort on our part. And it implies leaving the past behind, no longer doing the will of the Gentiles and pursuing the lusts of mankind. Now, this is our confession. This is our confession. 
And it is true for all people who confess Christ as Savior and Lord. And it's true in every age of church history, including the one in which we now live. There is no such thing as a cut and paste confession. It's an all or nothing proposition. Amen? Now, let's look at 22 through 24. Verse 22, when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, why Felix had a better understanding of the way, we don't know, other than it could be that because Felix, or because Drusilla, his wife, was Jewish, she had investigated the matter since Jesus uh, is presented to us as the king of the Jews, and therefore it was likely a topic of discussion in their home. Now, we are going to find in our next section that the reason that uh, Felix adjourned the proceedings and said he would wait for Claudius Lysias to arrive and give his testimony, is that he was hoping to obtain a bribe from Paul in an effort to obtain or secure his own release. He also didn't want to anger the Jews by letting him go. Now, the Romans had varying degrees of punishment and imprisonment, and Paul was allowed what was called custodia libera, meaning custody with liberties. And while he was never unguarded, he was allowed visitors who could bring him what he needed while living in the praetorium under guard. Now, after some days, seems to indicate that after quite some time, Felix and Drusilla came to inquire more about his faith in Christ, which we'll address uh, more fully in our last section. Now, Felix reacted rather interestingly, as we'll see in a moment. But we need to note, first of all, that Paul's prison became Paul's ministry. And it was his mission field. And in Colossians 4, 2-4, we're told, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, meanwhile praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. He wrote to Timothy along the same lines in 2, 8, and 9 of his second letter, saying, Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But, (coughs) excuse me, the word of God is not chains. Now, in Paul's epistles, he mentions his chains 11 times. That tells us that Paul wasn't some superhuman being in the sense that we would look at him through the lens of Superman or anything like that. He was quite aware of his negative circumstances and the cause of them. And he was not humanly indifferent to his plight. Yet he reminds Timothy that although he is chained, the gospel is not chained by his circumstances. Now, in other words, what he was saying is that the gospel is just as impactful inside the prison as it is on the outside. Now, here's what we can learn from Paul about holding fast to our confession. Here's the second of our three observations. Listen this morning. Places of difficulty are great platforms to preach from. 
places of difficulty are great platforms to preach from. Now, remember what Satan said about Job when the Lord was bragging on him? In Job 1, 9 through 11, Satan answered the Lord after the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job a just man and upright in all of his ways? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, even the world knows about Job. There are certain things that people who have never read the Bible know about the content of the Bible. Most of the world has heard about Daniel in the lion's den. Most of the world knows about David and Goliath. There are certain things that are known widely around the world, and Job and his suffering is one of those things. Now, we need to consider the fact that one of the reasons that we're so familiar with the story of Job is not just because of what happened to him, but how he reacted when it did. In Job 1, 20 to 22, we're told Job arose, tore his robe, a sign of mourning, shaved his head, same type of sign, and he fell to the ground and what? Worship. Who? God. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now listen to this. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with what? With wrong. Now, what makes these verses so memorable and Job's story so powerful is that the verses prior to chapter 1, 20 to 22 tell us that Job lost everything he had and everyone he loved in just a matter of minutes, except for his wife, who was a terrible counselor. She told him, why don't you just curse God and die? That's bad counsel. Amen. But if you read through what Job went through, it says, while the person who reported the bad news initially was still speaking, somebody came and reported worse news. And while they were still speaking, somebody came and reported worse news. And it happened four times. And Job arose, tore his robe, the last being that all of his kids and grandkids were gathered at his son's house. A wind came, blew the walls down, and his whole family was killed again, except for his wife, But Job arose, tore his robe, began his mourning, fell to the ground, and worshipped. Now, that's what we do every time as well. Right? Now, in Paul's case, and we'll make more of that point in a moment, usually the only good thing that's heard inside prison walls is that somebody's getting out. But not when Paul was there. And from the governor to the guards, the good news of the gospel was going to be preached... And many may have been a captive audience as he was, but Paul was going to preach from the midst of his difficult circumstances. He would even write to the church at Philippi in 1, 12 to 14, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole, who? To the palace guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident, become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, let me remind you, as a church, we're in a difficult 
situation right now. That was a hyphenated word, situation. <clears throat> the clock is ticking. And we need a new church home. Amen? And from the human perspective, nothing is happening. But that's never true on God's end. But listen, this I can say with the power and authority of all of heaven behind me. And that is this. God is on the throne and in control. And therefore, we need not fret. We need not fear. And that which has happened is an opportunity to further the gospel. As a matter of fact, difficult circumstances are a great platform to preach from. Now, Paul may have been inside the Praetorium walls and unable to leave and possibly even chained. But the fact is, he was the freest one in the prison. And no one could stop him from preaching the gospel. And maybe God has allowed your circumstances to further empower your preaching. Maybe the darkness of the moment you're now facing is where he wants to shine his hope through you so others can see it and therefore make inquiry about it. Now, listen, we've all had this thought, and I'll just state it, and it's true because it enters into our minds. You may not know what God is doing. Been there, done that? You may not know what God is doing, but you do know God. And he is on the throne and in control. He will never leave us nor forsake us. It is not possible that he should fail us. He'll never forget us because we're his people, the sheep of his pasture, pasture and the work of his hands. Amen. And listen, preaching from the chains of difficulty is more powerful than preaching from a position of ease. Think about it like this. Say your cupboards are bare. The bills are piling high. It's a little hard to hear from Bill Gates that everything's going to be okay. But when somebody else who has bare cupboards and somebody else who has bills piling up says with a heart filled with hope and a countenance to reflect it on their face, everything is going to be all right. God is never going to fail us. That's a message that carries more weight than someone who has not had the experience that we're going through. And listen, places of difficulty are great platforms to preach from. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, let's look at 25 to 27, and we'll wrap up our time together. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was blessed. No, he was what? He was afraid and answered, Go away for now. And when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. And therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius uh, Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul how? Bound. Now, Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Hera, Herod Agrippa I, and thus will be introduced to her family in our next chapter. She was a sister of Herod Agrippa II and sister-in-law to Bernice, that will, as I said, be introduced to. It was said of Drusilla that she was of a rare and striking beauty. 
And therefore, Felix hired a Cypriot magician who somehow seduced her and connived and convinced her to leave her husband and marry Felix. And she was actually Felix's third wife. So what did Paul preach to the sinful pair? Righteousness, self-control, and judgment, which was consistent with his confession we read earlier. Now, upon hearing Paul's message, Felix was afraid. The Greek is emphobos, and it means to be alarmed. It actually is the word used to describe physical trembling. And Paul's preaching caused Felix to tremble physically. Now, there are those today who would probably say to Paul, you shouldn't have preached to Felix and Drusilla that way. They were offended. Or they would say, you didn't love them into the kingdom. Or others would say, you never preached grace. Now, he preached what convicted them of their sin. And thus, his message was inspired of the Holy Spirit. And listen, we don't frame our message according to audience receptivity. Did you catch that? We don't frame our message or our confession according to audience receptivity. Listen, in the privileged opportunities I've had to speak to pastors and groups uh, of church leaders in the past, we all have to recognize that somebody standing up here in my position could get hands to raise in any given room, depending on how we package an invitation. Would you like to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Yeah, amen. So I could put on social media after this that hundreds of people got saved this morning. Listen, it matters how we package our message. It has to be according to the will of God. And we don't frame our message according to audience receptivity. We speak the truth and we speak it in love. And that is what Paul was doing here. There was nothing more loving than to tell this sinful couple they needed to repent of their sin because judgment was coming. Now, in Matthew 13, 1 to 8. We're told about when Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea and great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables saying, behold, a sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. Some seed, uh, some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up and they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some thirty, and some, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him what? Hear. Let me ask you, was there a different type of seed for each soil? No, not at all. Did Jesus say the sower should have had better aim? And not sow seed where it wasn't going to yield a crop? Listen, a couple of weeks ago when I was speaking at the Pastors and Leaders Conference for the greater L.A. area, I mentioned that Jesus had made us fishers of men. And we ought to go out and share the gospel, obviously. And I was indeed preaching to the choir. But the reason was this. I was thinking about the time that Jesus made this statement, where fishing was done by net. And the fact is, when you fish with a net, there is no bait. You just throw the net out, and some fish will escape it, some will uh, swim through the net, but you'll bring in your catch. You just throw it out like the gospel, 
and it will catch fish. And that's the same thing we need to do today. The net is the gospel. It's already fashioned. It's already been crafted by God. It already has every necessary component within it to save the perishing soul. So do we need to add bait? No, we just throw the net out there. Just like the sower throws the seed. And this is what Paul does. He doesn't use bait with Felix. He just throws out the gospel net. He preaches righteousness, self-control, and impending judgment. He was telling Felix and Drusilla, listen, your sinner's headed for judgment if you don't repent and come to Christ. Now, this gives us our last element of our confession that we need to hold fast to in these ever-changing times and poor decisions being made in churches around the country and world. And listen, here's our last of three. Listen, this morning, the gospel cannot be improved upon, only infringed upon. The gospel cannot be improved upon, only infringed upon. And listen, infringe means to break the terms of. And any time you add or take away from the gospel, you're infringing upon it. And you are not adding anything to it. And if we take away, we're not improving it. We've broken the terms of it. And Paul said in Romans 1, 16 and 17, are you guys still here? Okay, just checking. You got awful quiet there. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Here's a chronology for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by what? By faith. Doesn't faith require an object? The object of faith as far as uh, saving the human soul is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Did Paul preach righteousness to Felix and Drusilla? Did he apologize for making Felix tremble? No. Shouldn't, listen, shouldn't people tremble at the idea of going to hell after they die? Shouldn't that make people tremble? So listen, if you leave that out of your message... Are you improving upon the gospel in hopes of yielding a bigger crop? No, of course not. You're infringing upon it. You're doing damage to it. The fact is, why would anyone leave that portion out of the gospel? Yet that is popular uh, in teaching circles today. Well, some would say, but the gospel is good news and hell is not good news. Well, if everyone goes to heaven, that's not good news. It's just news. Because there's no contrasting experience by which to measure it. And listen, heaven is good because it's contrasted in the sense of being rescued from hell. And Paul says, I'm glad I'm not going to hell, aren't you? I think that's kind of exciting. (laughs) I didn't expect that small of a reaction to that. I don't know. I think it's exciting not to be going to hell, don't you? Now, Paul says, hey, God is righteous, we're not. He says to the sinful couple, you have no self-control, which is a fruit of the spirit, and thus judgment is imminent for them. Felix trembled, and he sent Paul away. He wriggled out of the gospel net. He had him come back, but not to ask him more about saving faith, but in hopes of getting a bribe in order to obtain Paul's release. Now, Felix actually violated Roman law himself, by exceeding what was called the preventative custody law, which was not allowed to exceed two years. But he kept Paul within the praetorium walls for two years and then handed him off to Festus, and he went his way unsaved. Paul told Felix the truth, and Felix went his own way. 
would a different message have saved him? No, because different messages don't have saving power. Only the truth can make us free. And Paul told Felix and Drusilla the truth. And thus, we need to hold fast to our confession. We need to speak and see as the same the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It is only truth that can make one free. And Paul told Felix and Drusilla the truth. And we need to tell the world the truth. There is a hell. Amen. And I like how Ray Comfort puts it. He says, the bad news makes the good news better. And the fact is, without Christ, there's bad news. You're going to be judged according to your works. You're going to stand before God and give an account for every time the gospel message was rejected, every violation of God's unchanging moral code and standard, that being the Ten Commandments. You'll answer for everything you've ever done. And at the end, because you have no advocate with the Father, who is Jesus Christ the righteous, you will be separated from him forever and cast into a lake of fire, which is the second and eternal death. But if you're part of the first resurrection which is also listed as a group who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, the second death has no power over you. And therefore, this is why we need to be clear about our preaching today. The gospel cannot be altered without robbing it of its soul-saving power. We have to teach the whole counsel of God. We have to hold fast to our confession until the end. And believe me, the evidence, I believe, states that we are near the end. Jesus is coming soon. So, <clears throat> does this ever-darkening world need a watered-down, culturally acceptable message? Or they do, do they need a gospel that is preached with its full strength, even though it causes some to tremble and some to go away? Well, I think you know the answer. At least I hope you do. We need to preach the truth. And you know what? We might be in a difficult place. You might be in a difficult place. But that's a great platform for preaching. Because it reveals there's a hope in us that cannot be found or had in this life. And it's a hope that is of a supernatural origin. It is a hope that is placed in the object of our faith. That being God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Son whom he sent into the world. That we might not perish but have everlasting what? Life. Sounds like a pretty good offer to me, right? Well, it's what the world needs to hear, and it's the only message that we need to be presenting to them. We don't cut and paste the message of God. We teach it undiluted in its full strength according to how it's framed in God's Word. And Paul gives us an outstanding example of four components to our confession. So let's go to the world and preach the gospel to all the people we like. Preach the gospel to who? Every creature. And remember, every means every, every time. So let's preach the gospel to this lost and dying world and hold fast to our confession upon which is based the hope of eternal life in Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, we are grateful again this morning for your matchless word. We are thankful, Lord, that you yet remain today unwilling that any should perish. You told us within your inspired and infallible word that you have chosen as the means to reach the world the foolishness of preaching. So, Lord, we thank you that you reminded us that we as sent ones are to go to the world and preach that message, 
even when our own circumstances are difficult, even when they're painful, Lord, even when we're scratching our heads saying, where are you? Knowing full well, Lord, that you will not leave us nor forsake us as you promised in your word. And that we cannot be snatched from your hand, nor can we be separated from your love. And Lord, we live in a time where this message is not being received, but help us not to fall prey to what many are doing today, and that is changing the message to accommodate the hearer. Lord, may we be faithful to preach the word, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, even in a time where fables and fiction are preferred over the soundness of your doctrines. So help us in that, we pray, Lord, because it's not always warmly received. But, Lord, it's the only thing that can save the human soul. So we thank you for this a reminder this morning. We give you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.